0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McLarty.
1: Psalm 37 is where we are tonight, and before we launch into the psalm, it is a long psalm. It is 40 verses. We will try to cover the whole thing tonight, but there are several places that kind of beg for stopping and some commentary, but I will try to get through the whole psalm this evening. There are three sort of explanatory things that we need to understand first. This psalm returns to one of David's themes, which is the contrast between the righteous and the wicked of this world. And in particular, he's going to talk about the tendency that the righteous have in this world to struggle in this world while we see the sinners of the world and the ungodly in the world getting all the stuff of the world. They get rich. They seem to be well cared for. And so it's sort of natural to look at the difference between what we're struggling with and how easy their lives are going and to think that that is unfair. David's going to return to that frequently during this psalm in order to say, don't worry about it. God is just. God is fair. And God is ultimately going to reward them according to their works, and reward you according to your works. Secondly, we're going to see several references to salvation. And each time that David uses the word salvation, I usually pause and point out that David is not talking about eternal salvation. That becomes really obvious from the context tonight, that he is talking about God saving Israel in their land preserving them, caring for them, not letting them fall to their enemies. And in this psalm, you're going to see several references to the land because part of David's inspiration for pursuing righteousness, for pursuing the law, for pursuing godliness, is that he wants God's protection. He wants God to preserve him in the land. The land is part of the heritage of Israel, and of course they are surrounded by enemies who would like nothing more than to take their land from them. It's the same today as it was then. And so you're going to see references to salvation and several references to the land. So verse 1 is immediately going to frame the whole of this psalm, which is that contrast between the wicked in the world and the righteous in the world. Do not fret, do not worry, do not be upset because of the evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass, and they will fade like the green herb. Trust the Lord, and do good, and dwell in the land, and cultivate faithfulness. I like the little word play there, of land and cultivate. And what you're supposed to cultivate in the land is more than just crops, but cultivate faithfulness, counting on God, trusting God, regardless of what you're going through. And when you see that the evildoers seem to be thriving in this world, don't get upset about it. Don't fret over it. Don't worry over it. And don't get yourself bound up in knots saying, here I am serving God, and these wicked seem to be doing just fine in the world. So don't fret because of the evildoers, and don't be envious toward the wrongdoers. And then verse 4, I have heard misused so many times, so many ways. I'm sure Jeff has heard this misused in the name-it-claim-it church of his background. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. So all you got to do is be happy about God and delight yourself in the Lord. And then you get to name and claim whatever you want. New car, new house, perfect health. But that's not, as you can see in the context, what David is saying. It's only if you pull that verse out of its context that you can kind of twist it in such a way where you can turn it into a name it and claim it verse What David is saying is trust the Lord, be faithful to the Lord, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desire of your heart. If your desire is the protection of God, if your desire is for God to keep you in the land and to be faithful in taking care of you and preserving you from your enemies and therefore you're delighting in the Lord, what then is the desire of your heart. Clearly, it's the Lord. So it's not delight yourself in the Lord and get whatever you want. It's delight yourself in the Lord and he will respond in a reciprocal way and he will give you the things that you desire. In this case, it's that we stay in our land and that we are protected. So delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord Here's the parallel. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. So you take those two parallel verses, lay them side by side. David is saying the same thing twice, which is trust in the Lord, be faithful to the Lord, do good while you're living in the Lord's land. Commit all your ways, all your actions, your life, the way you walk, commit all of that to the Lord. Trust in him completely, and he'll take care of everything else. Doesn't sound like much of a name it, claim it verse after you put it in context, does it? And, verse 6, and he will bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your judgment as noonday. In other words, God is going to bring everything to light. This is the same God who said, let there be light, and suddenly there was light. He is the one who is going to produce righteousness in you the same way that he produced light in the entire cosmos. So then rest in the Lord. How many things has David instructed us to do so far? Trust in God. Be faithful to God. Trust him. Dwell in the land in faithfulness. Delight yourself. Commit your way. Trust also in him. So now rest in the Lord. And wait patiently for him. And again, do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. So that is the primary theme of this whole psalm. Don't fret yourself. Don't worry about the fact that the earth dwellers continue in their wickedness and seem to be doing fine, seem to be getting away with it seem not to fall under the judgment of God, and are getting rich in this world. Avoid the tendency to look at them and be envious of them because of what they have that you don't have. Rather, trust God, be faithful to God, rest in God, commit your way to God, and wait patiently for him. So then in context, what David is saying is, God is going to settle everything. You are going to be rewarded. The end of the rich people, he's about to say, the end of the wicked earth dwellers is that they're going to blow away like grass. God is ultimately going to destroy them all and you are going to be preserved and you are going to be in his presence. That's just not happening yet. Therefore, wait on the Lord. Trust God. He is going to make it all right. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger. Forsake wrath. Do not fret. That only leads to evil doing. All of those things in context is David saying, don't take judgment into your own hands. As you see the wicked of the world, don't bring your own vengeance on them. God, again, is going to exercise his judgment, his vengeance. So then cease from your jealousy of them. Cease from your envy of them. Don't be angry at them. Forsake your fierce wrath at them. And therefore, because you're not fretting, because you're trusting God, because you're walking faithfully before him, You know that he is preserving you. He is protecting you. He is going to balance the scales one day, and he's going to judge in your favor. And if you know all of that, then you're not going to fall into the wrath, your own personal anger, your own personal judgment and vengeance, which David says only leads to evil doing. And if that's the case, how are you any different than the evil doers? So if you indeed are going to stay on the side of God, if you're going to indeed stay on the side of righteousness, you have to cease from your anger, forsake your wrath, do not fret. That only leads to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. So there's the contrast. The long-term inheritance in Israel among the people that David is leading and writing to is that if they trust God, if they are faithful to God, he will preserve them. But ultimately, he's going to cut off all the evildoers. He's going to go into more detail about that in a moment. Verse 10. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. So he's going to be ultimately completely gone while you yourself are preserved. Verse 11. But the humble will inherit the land, and they will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Does that sound familiar? Because Jesus picked up that same theme on the Sermon on the Mount when he said the meek shall inherit the earth. He made the earth the land that God has promised to his people and the meek will inherit the earth." Tom, when you were out in California, did you ever go down into Studio City to Carney's Hot Dogs? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. This all relates, by the way. This was not just an aside. There was a wall at Carney's that every couple of months they would repaint that wall. But they had a magic marker hanging on a string there, and they invited people to write graffiti on the wall, just You know, write little pithy phrases on the wall. There was one particular little thing that somebody had written where you could see the various coats of paint where they had painted around it for several coats. It was there for a long time. And all it said was, the meek don't want it. (laughs) Here David inspired Jesus to say, be humble toward God. Don't be angry. Forsake your wrath. Don't fret. Don't worry. Don't get yourself all eaten up with these concerns. And be humble. And you're the one that's going to inherit the land. The meek are going to inherit the earth. And you will, or they will, delight themselves in abundant prosperity. OK, so right now, here on the planet, we look at the evildoers of the world, and they seem to be prospering while we may be struggling. OK, there's nobody in this room right now that I would have to say was struggling financially. We're all fed, and we're all clothed, and we're meeting in this nice building. And... But sometimes it's real easy, as you're going through the difficulties of this life, to think, but I'm following God, and here I'm going through difficulties. That guy has never followed God, and he seems to be fine. David has said repeatedly that God is going to bring about a proper judgment and a proper reward for the evil and for the righteous. The end of that is that the righteous, the humble, are going to delight themselves in abundant prosperity. I would rather be joint heir with Christ of everything that lays in eternity than to have all the riches of this world. I am not a your best life now kind of guy. I'm a your best life later kind of guy because I would rather take part in the abundance of the glory and the prosperity of God eternally than to have these short-term, tangible, earthly rewards. Anybody with me on that? Yeah, okay. It's
2: a smaller slice of a much, 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 much,
1: much bigger pie. Way much bigger pie, yeah. Verse 12, he's going to describe the activity of the wicked. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth, and the Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day is coming. I like that David included that because it's almost like commentary on Psalm 2, back when he was talking about the kings of the earth and the people of the earth who cast off the leadership of God. And then we read that God in heaven laughs and holds them in derision. But David does not tell us what God's motivation or inspiration is when he's laughing. Why is he laughing? Here he tells us that the reason that God laughs at people who rebel against Him, who plot against the righteous. The reason He laughs is because He sees the day of judgment coming. God already knows what the end is for them. So while they're walking around putting their chest out and boasting about how well they're doing, God mocks them because He knows that their day is coming. Verse 14. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy to slay those who are upright in conduct. The contrast that David continues to lay out here is that part of what defines the evil of this world is not just that their actions are wicked, not just that they take advantage of other people, but that they target the righteous That is an indication of how wicked they are when they see the righteous, they immediately reject them and in this case, seek to kill them, seek to eliminate them. It's the same way right now. We just call it cancel culture. If you go on any kind of social media and argue in favor of righteousness versus the just massive amount of sin that this world is engaged in, The sinners, the evil of this world, are not going to repent of their ways and say, oh, thank you for pointing out Christian values to me. Thank you for showing me the Bible and what it says. No, what they're going to try to do is cancel you, shut you up, shut you down. Just get you to stop talking, stop making them feel guilty. It was that way in David's day. It's that way today because nothing ever changes in human nature. The wicked have drawn their sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy. That's one part of it, taking advantage of the poor, taking advantage of those people who they can afflict, but also to slay those who are upright in conduct. Their sword will enter their own heart, and their bows will be broken. By the way, it's worth asking the question, How is that going to happen? How are they going to fall on their own sword? And how is it that their weapons of warfare are going to be broken? Are you going to do it? You got that, Bobby? You going to get out there to all the wicked and break their bows and knock their swords out of their hands? No. This is clearly, again, God's demonstration of the fact that he will righteously judge, that the end result of all this chaos on the planet is going to be the righteousness of God. Verse 16, we're all going to agree with this. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. Even though there's a whole bunch of wicked people who might have a whole lot of collective wealth, that wealth is all going to fade. Everything they've accumulated is going to burn. It's a whole lot better to have a little bit of righteousness and be an heir of God's glory than to have the riches of this world. Verse 17. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their inheritance will be forever. There's the next contrast David lays out. Temporary rewards in this world, temporary riches in this world, versus an inheritance that will last forever. Any person, logically, would come to the conclusion that a forever inheritance is a whole lot better than a Cadillac today. Verse 19, they will not be ashamed in the day of evil that hebrew word ashamed i mean it's translated be ashamed here but it's the word that means disappointed to be completely let down and so the righteous we who are following god are living here on the planet during this time of evil but we're not going to be disappointed ultimately we're going to receive the inheritance that lasts forever So even though the days of evil are on us, we're not to change our faith, don't change our walk, don't change our following of God, trust God anyway, because we're not going to be ultimately disappointed or ashamed, despite the times we live in. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil. And in the days of famine, they will have abundance. I, I expect this is true of all of us, I've never been through a real famine. I've been fortunate. I live in America. I've been through times of food getting more expensive, but I've always had access to food. But there are people on the planet who have been through famine, and in David's time, because they didn't have refrigeration, they didn't have the food storage technology that we have these days, Famines happened fairly frequently there in the Middle East, surrounded by deserts. And yet he could say that despite the famines, the righteous were going to be protected, that they were still going to have abundance. That is a demonstration of his trust in God. That is a demonstration of his faithfulness to God, knowing that whatever happens, the righteous are going to be okay. God is going to protect them. Because what's the worst that a famine can do to you? might kill you. Then you go to your forever inheritance. Either way, following after God, walking after God makes more sense. In the days of famine, they will have abundance, but, verse 20, the wicked will perish, and the enemies of the Lord will be like the glory Of the pastures. Now he'll describe what that means because glory, that word means the essential essence of what something is. And so he is likening them to pastures where sheep graze or cattle graze. And he says that's what they're like. Their essential nature is like a pasture that feeds cows, they vanish, and like smoke, they vanish away. Pasture land is oftentimes difficult for a shepherd to find. Good pasture land is difficult if, you're, if you have a large herd of cattle. That's what separated Abraham and Lot, was having enough pasture land for their flocks. And so David likens the wicked to a pasture because pastures seem to just dry up and blow away. They vanish like smoke. They just vanish away. The wicked borrows, does not pay back. That would be called stealing. By contrast, but the righteous is gracious and gives. For those blessed by him, those who are blessed by God, will inherit the land. But those cursed by him will be cut off. They will not ultimately be part of the land. When we get to the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and 22, we're going to be reading about the new Jerusalem, and one of the things that John points out about the new Jerusalem is that there won't be sinners there, There won't be any liars, won't be any blasphemers, there will be saints living in the new Jerusalem, because it is the ultimate land of God. So is David correct here where he says that the cursed are going to be cut off from the land and the blessed are going to live in the land? Yep. It's consistent with everything else we know about the Bible and consistent all the way to the book of Revelation. So knowing that that's still coming, we would have to agree with David, wait on the Lord, he will do it. Verse 22. For those blessed by him will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. We've got to talk about that for just a moment. I think the King James says the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, but it is talking about the righteous man. The righteous man is not good independent of God. He is not good because he determined that his walk and his behavior was going to be better than everybody else. Rather, he is righteous because God has established the steps of that man. God is the one who set him upright and planted him in the land in his inheritance. The steps of a man are established by the Lord. And then in the NASB, the next word, he, is capitalized, giving you the impression that what this next sentence says is that God delights in the way of the person. But that capitalization is a choice made by the translators. It could just as easily be read that he, the upright man, recognizing that it is God who has established his steps, then delights in all the ways of God, which actually I think fits the context better, especially considering that verse 4 said, to delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. So David's instruction is always delight in the way of God. Recognize the value of God's ordering your steps, giving you the law, telling you what he expects of you. Therefore, I read it as the steps of a man, of a righteous man, that's the implication, are established by the Lord, and that man delights in the way of God. And then also, Verse 24, remembering that David did not write 24 at that moment, as he continues his thought, he's talking about the man, because when he falls, he shall not be hurled down headlong. So that indicates to me again that he's talking about the man and not God, who is the one who delights in the way of God. And part of delighting in the way of God is that even when we fall, even when we stumble, even when we struggle in this lifetime, that we're not going to be cast out entirely. We're not going to be hurled headlong down into the pit. And why? Because Yahweh is the one who holds his hand. So it's all very consistent. It is God holding our hand. It is God leading our steps. It is God who establishes our way, Therefore, we delight in God who is leading us along because even when we fail, we're not going to be destroyed because it is God who is holding us up. So I think that context is more consistent. Verse 25, I have reached an age where I'm now able to relate entirely to this verse. I have been young and now I am old. That'd be me right here. And yet, says David, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants out there on the streets begging for bread. So David is saying it's not as if the righteous are completely abandoned in this world. They are cared for. They are given their daily bread the same way that Jesus said, you go to God and say, give us today our daily bread. David's experience is that he says, I, I've never seen the righteous forsaken. I've never seen their descendants out looking for handouts. God has always preserved them. That's David's experience. And he says, that's my whole life. From the time I was young till now that I am old, that has been my experience that God has always taken care of his people. Verse 26. All day long, he... That's the person, the righteous person. All day long, he is gracious and lends, and his descendants are a blessing. Notice then that David is saying, because the righteous have never been forsaken and because the righteous have never had to go out begging just to eat for another day, for that reason, they themselves become generous because they recognize the provision of God their whole life long. They recognize that God is leading them through their life, that he is holding their hands and keeping them from falling headlong into pits. And as a consequence, their reaction is generosity because they recognize that it is God who is constantly providing for them. Therefore, all day long, he is gracious and he lends and his descendants are a blessing. Okay, so knowing all that, how should we behave? How should we walk? Well, that's verse 27. Depart from evil and do good. And so you will abide forever. That's that eternal inheritance that he talked about. Verse 28. For the Lord loves justice, and he does not forsake his godly ones in the new testament that would be saints his hagios the ones that he has set apart for himself he does not forsake them he does not abandon them so no matter how difficult this life gets so no matter what circumstances you may be going through even if you reach the point where you're thinking where is god in all this and how did this happen to me David's declaration repeatedly is, God has not forsaken you. That's also Paul's declaration. Be content with such things as you have, because he said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So the consistent testimony is that God does not forsake his people. Once they are his people, they are eternally his people, and they're going to inherit this eternal blessing this eternal inheritance because the Lord loves justice and he does not forsake his godly ones because they are preserved forever. But the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land. How often now have we seen this reference to land? That's why I began by saying we have to understand the importance of the land as Israel's inheritance, and they're surrounded by enemies that were constantly trying to take their land, and part of the preservation and salvation of God was to keep his people in the land that was given to them, that was promised to them. And so faithfulness results in God protecting them in their land. Descendants of the wicked are going to be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land, And dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. Okay, David just told us that God loves justice. And the mouth, the tongue of the righteous, utters wisdom. Their tongue speaks justice. Okay, how can that possibly be? I mean, here we are on planet Earth. all we sinners, doing whatever seems advantageous to us. And then suddenly we're going to start speaking wisdom and our tongues are going to start talking justice, fairness. Remember that the king was the judge and God delights in the king being just, being righteous and fair with people. How does that happen? Well, again, David is clearly saying, This is the work of God. It is God who is holding his hand. It is God who is keeping him from falling. It is God who is teaching him the way that he should walk. It is God who is teaching him righteousness by his law. So even the very fact that the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom doesn't mean that the righteous person gets to take credit for it. And now here is that answer. That's why I was extrapolating on it. Verse 31, the law of God is in his heart. And his steps do not slip. So God plants him securely so that he doesn't stumble, so that he doesn't fall. He has the law guiding his path so that he can understand God's expectation of how to walk, how to live in righteousness. And at the same time, the promise is that when you do stumble, you're not utterly going to fall because God's going to take you by the hand. It's very much like the promise from John that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So whether it's the Old Testament by the law looking to God in righteousness and faithfulness, whether it's the new covenant in Jesus Christ, the promise is always you're going to be okay, but not because of you. You're going to be okay because of God's faithfulness to you and God's devotion and love for his chosen ones. Verse 32, the wicked are a bunch of peeping Toms or peeping Jeffs. I don't care. We can go either way with that. The wicked spies on the righteous and seeks to kill him. David has already said that once in this psalm. Now he is emphasizing it yet again that part of the wickedness is that they look at the righteous and they hate what they see. Look, it's the same way today. Have you ever announced your Christianity or walked out your Christianity or declared your Christianity to friends, neighbors, or family and had them utterly reject you and want to shut you down and get you to go away? It's what he's describing here as they spy on the righteous. They hate what they see because they want to kill the Righteous. The righteous are like a big red flag announcing that God exists and that judgment is coming and that they're ultimately going to be utterly destroyed. So what's their reaction? Kill the person who said that. Verse 33. And the Lord will not leave him in his hand. Even as the wicked are attempting to shut us down, even as the wicked are attempting to kill us and destroy us, The Lord, by his almighty power, is the one who is going to preserve us and not leave us in the hand of the wicked, or let us be condemned when we're judged. Apparently, that is the judgment of the wicked who want to kill us. And yet, our preservation is not up to us. It's not up to us getting angry, taking our own vengeance, ultimately, our... Salvation, ultimately our preservation, is the result of God himself who is going to protect us. The Lord will not leave him in the hand of the wicked. He will not let us be condemned when we're judged by the wicked. So what's the answer? Verse 34. He says it again. Wait for the Lord and keep his way. While you're waiting for God's ultimate judgment, while you're waiting for God to reward both the just and the unjust, you personally stay in the way of God. Keep your walk straight. Walk as if you are righteous. And do that apparently with patience, because he will exalt you to inherit the land. And when the wicked are cut off, then you're going to see it. Peter picks up the same thing in the New Testament and that he will exalt you in due time. And Peter says it in the context of continue your righteous walk because you know that God will exalt you in due time. So whether it's the Old Testament, whether it's the New Testament, waiting on God, trusting God, is the only proper biblical way to walk through this life, knowing that as we wait on God We walk according to God's standards because one day he will exalt us to inherit the land and the wicked are going to be cut off. We're going to see God do that. Verse 35. I have seen a violent, wicked man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. A luxuriant tree in its native soil just grows like mad becomes a large and dominant tree. And here David is saying, I've seen violent and wicked people live in luxury. I've seen violent, wicked people have all the things this world can provide for them. I've seen violent and wicked men spreading themselves like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. But then he passed away. And lo, he was no more. I looked for him, but he could not be found. So again, that is David's demonstration that being wicked and having everything this world has to offer does not get you eternal inheritance, does not get you eternal reward. The righteous are going to watch God cut off the evil, And David said, I've had that experience in my own lifetime. The same way that I was young and have been old and I've never seen the righteous forsaken, I have also seen evil, wicked men get very well to do and very rich in this world. But then they're gone. They're dead. They pass away. Even if you look for them, you can't find them anywhere. So what should you do? Verse 37. Mark, the blameless man. In other words, pay attention to people and their behavior and find people who are walking after righteousness, find people who are walking after God and his standards and mark them, check them out, pay attention to them, recognize who they are, mark the blameless man and behold the upright for the man of peace will have a posterity. That is in contrast with the evil and the wicked and the violent who are going to pass away and then they are no more. You look for them and they're gone. They can't be found. But the blameless and the upright are going to have a posterity that's going to live on. Verse 38. But transgressors will be altogether destroyed. Destroyed the posterity of the wicked will be cut off. So the man of peace will have an ongoing and lasting posterity, but the posterity of the wicked will be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. There's a theological concept that permeates the whole of the Bible, whether it's Jonah in the fish's belly saying salvation is of the Lord, or whether it's everything we believe about election and God's foreordination. We argue repeatedly that all salvation has to be from God because there are no people who are strong enough, smart enough, theologically adept enough, or holy and righteous enough in their behavior to obligate God. All righteousness, all salvation, whether we're talking about physical salvation, like in David's case, which was keeping Israel in the land that God had promised them, whether it was protection from their enemies, whether it was protection from the wild animals, all of their salvation and security, David says, is a result of Yahweh looking out for us, taking care of us, preserving us, causing us to walk in righteousness. But even if we're talking about eternal salvation, we would all have to agree that that salvation can only be of Yahweh himself. The salvation of the righteous is from Yahweh. He is their strength in time of trouble. A minute ago I said, regardless of what you go through in this life, Paul argues that the troubles of this life create patience in you. And that creates faith in you. Because as you go through these problems and then are delivered from them, you grow in confidence that you're going to be able to get through the next one, too, because you got through the last one. And the more you recognize that you got through it because of God and his power and his deliverance, the more you'll reach the next problem and say, I'll get through this not because of me, but because of God and his deliverance, because he's delivered me so many times. And that's what David is getting at here. Their strength in their time of trouble is always Yahweh, faithfulness and confidence in God. So as often as David has said here, walk a certain way, behave a certain way, be a certain way, have faith and confidence in God. And then when you see the wicked of this world prospering Don't fret over them. Don't worry over them. Don't stress over them. Leave it up to God. God will do it. God will make the appropriate judgment between those that are his and those that are the evil earth dwellers. And if you know all that, then you can walk righteously before God, recognizing that it's not for nothing that you're living like this. Even as you're persecuted in this world. Even though you may not get all the world's riches here and now, it is completely worth it to walk according to the righteousness of God because of your eternal inheritance and because you know that the strength and the salvation and the righteousness all comes from God. And as I said on Sunday, just repeating what Paul said 2,000 years ago, if God be for us, you're going to get through it. Who can be against you? The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in times of trouble. And the Lord helps them. And the Lord delivers them. Okay, so anybody here been in trouble? Had a tough time? Been sick? Weren't sure if you were ever going to get up again? Did you get through it? I used to ask the congregation, how many of you went through a problem where you heard yourself saying, This is going to kill me. I'm not going to get through this. And I would ask people to raise their hands. Some people would raise their hands and say, yeah, yeah, I went through a problem so bad that I thought this one's going to kill me. And I would say, and how many of you died? Of course, they were sitting there with their hands raised. So, okay. so why is it that you didn't die? Why is it that you survived it? Why is it that you got through it? The answer's right there in front of you. It is the Lord that delivers you, who helps you. It is the God who preserves you. It is God who is your salvation and your preservation. He delivers them, the righteous. He delivers them from the wicked. And he saves them because they take their refuge in him. We hide in him. We trust in him. We depend on him. It's one of the key essential differences between the earth dwellers and the people of God. The earth dwellers are all egocentric and prideful and saying, whatever this world throws at me, I'll get through it because of my strength, my determination, self-made man. Whereas the righteous person walks after the course of God, his expectations, we have faith, we have confidence in God lifting us up by the hand when we stumble, so that we're not completely thrown down. And so to close tonight, I would ask you the question, where's your confidence? How are you going to get through the rest of your life? Because in a minute, you're going to walk out that door again, and you're going to be facing the whole rest of the world. And how are you going to deal with the whole rest of the world? You're going to do it by your strength? Well, that's a sure recipe for failure. You're going to do it by the strength of God that is a sure recipe that he is going to deliver you, save you, preserve you, and ultimately reward you eternally in a way that this world simply can't. Sure. That to me sounds like a better deal. Yes. So. Tom and I agree. I don't know what the rest of you think, but Tom and I are in agreement up here. Questions? Yes, sir.
2: I know the Lord forgives us when we're unfaithful. In the Old Testament, Achan is uh, chooses gold, silver, and a mantle of Shinar. Right? Yeah. The Lord cuts him off. Not just him, but his whole bloodline, his whole family. Do you think he just cuts him off physically, and and you know he'll he'll be saved spiritually, eternally with his family? He just did that to to teach a lesson, and then. In the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira show like the same unfaithfulness and they hold back. I'd like to think that he just cuts them off physically to teach a lesson.
1: There are examples of God doing that. In fact, Paul writes that the Corinthian church was doing the communion so wrong that there were some weak and dead among them. You don't see it in the English, but he contrasts a couple of words that mean temporary physical judgment and ultimate eternal judgment, and he says they were judged temporally so that they wouldn't be judged eternally, and that is just the grace of God that he would do such a thing. As far as Achan in the camp, I have no idea what his ultimate fate was. Even if God was using Achan Or Korah and his band, when he opened up the earth and swallowed him, took him directly to the pit, that was an example to everybody else, but I can't tell you what the ultimate end of Korah or Achan was. But if if God's ire and anger was stirred up to such a point that he was willing to do something like that to them, it's kind of hard to justify. Does that make sense? Anybody want to go on record as knowing God's mind on those two episodes? Okay. Anything else?
2: You referenced uh, Revelation 21 Yeah, 22. I suppose if we just made a short summary of those, it would sound very much like what David said. The righteous are preserved forever, inherit the land, and the wicked are cut off. I mean, that's exactly what... and of course David didn't make that up I mean it goes back to the promise he received in second Samuel 7 where God makes the covenant with him and, and the language of that covenant is you know just like I think he uses the you know, the word forever here five or six times yeah and that's in the kingdom the throne eternal forever repeated there so he very much has that promise and you know without the benefit that we have of revelation of Jesus Christ, given by John, that we we're going through on Sunday, where we get to see chapter 21 and 22. The ultimate end. The same, testifying yeah. the same thing, and he saw yeah. the same thing. summarize it. So.
1: Yeah, that's obviously part and parcel of faith in God across the board, yeah. is that one day he's going to establish his people in the land and cut off the wicked. And Jesus said it when Jesus talked about the judgment of the just and the unjust. So it's, it's thematic to the Bible. But boy, if you're on the wrong side of that, you don't want to hear it. And you sure want to shut up anybody who talks about it. Anything else? All right.